session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary for the book of the week for this past week, the book of the week for this week is What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed by Mitch Golant and Susan Golant. What to do when someone you love is depressed, a practical, compassionate, and helpful guide. I'd heard about this book, um, and also very often people will ask, of course, we're dealing with our own mental health and what we're going through, but what to do when someone you love is going through something, and this book is focusing on depression. I haven't started it yet, uh, but looking forward to reading it and to know what we can do, and sometimes... It's also recognizing what we can't do or the limits of what we can do, and that can be important as well. But looking forward to reading What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed by Mitch Gallant and Susan Gallant, and I'll be sharing that with you next week. Might have a guest on Monday's show. If so, I would talk about this Wednesday. All right, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Why? What Makes Us Curious by Mario Livio. And it was quite an interesting book. Um, some people made jokes on my social media about why did I choose this, or they were curious as to why I choose, chose this book. Uh, but I chose it, as I do often, uh, by its cover. And also, it seemed interesting. And it's actually written by an astrophysicist, Mario Livio, who's written other books more related to science. And he uh, acknowledges that he's not a psychologist, but he does talk to and cite the research of many psychologists and neuroscientists. Um, but also he interviews people who he deems to be curious or he says are, are curious and also outlines some of the personalities of two people in particular, but others who are curious. He gets into depth about Leonardo da Vinci and then also um, a physicist, I think it's Richard Feynman, uh, and who were very curious about many different topics, not just their uh, one main topic, but lots of different things. And so just to define curiosity, which is always a good place to start, is to recognize what are we even talking about. He mentions that there isn't one set definition. And also, I think, as he mentions in the book, it's not just one thing we're talking about, but he says that curiosity, he uses a definition that he says um, is from University of Rochester cognitive scientist Celeste Kidd and Benjamin Hayden. Curiosity is a drive state for information, or then he says even more simply, curiosity is the desire to know why, how, or who. When we want to know something, that's what we call curiosity, or that's what we're talking about here. And he talks about also how different psychologists have come up with different 
ways of determining what type of curiosity we're talking about or different types of curiosity. So, for example, we can talk about perceptual curiosity, which is when something is an extreme outlier, so it gets our attention. He gives the example of the reaction of Asian, Asian children in a remote village seeing a Caucasian for the first time. So that would make us, we're curious because it's something different from what we're used to seeing, and that's perceptual curiosity. But then on the other end of that spectrum would be epistemic curiosity, which is the desire for knowledge. So in a way, this is just wanting to know. And so sometimes we see this type of curiosity where we just want to know more about something. It's not that something has surprised us or it's something new. Maybe first it's something new, but we keep wanting to know more, sometimes knowing just for knowing's sake, to know more things. And then also another way of defining or types of curiosity would be specific curiosity, which is when what we're looking for is a particular piece of information. For example, let's say um, the an answer to a crossword puzzle or the name of a movie you saw last week. That would be specific curiosity. And then also there's diversive curiosity, which is uh, not a specific thing. It's just a desire to explore and this, to seek novel uh, stimulation to avoid boredom. So just wanting to see new things. So we can see that we can make many different types. And also he talks about things like morbid curiosity and empathic curiosity. So we have other forms as well, but those are some ways we can look at it. And I think absolutely curiosity isn't just one thing because um, when we try to make theories to explain it, we realize that most of them come short very often in any field, but especially with psychology, people try to make up theories or come up with theories that cover the whole spectrum of some phenomenon. And what we find is that usually it's not going to be just one theory. So for example, one theory of curiosity or to describe curiosity or try to understand it better is an information gap model. And what that means is that we see something or find something and there's a gap in the information or understanding about whatever that thing is. And this creates a negative feeling, an aversive feeling within us. And because we want to get rid of that negative feeling, this bad feeling that comes from not knowing the thing or the gap in our knowledge, we seek to find that information. And then when we find that information, we feel a resolution of that negative feeling. It goes away. So this is the information gap model. But this doesn't explain all types of curiosity because sometimes when we're curious, actually it feels quite good. First example with the epistemic type of curiosity, when people are just wanting to learn more about something, it's not because there's some gap that makes them feel bad. They're actually enjoying the process of knowing more and want to know more just for knowing's sake. But it does make sense. Sometimes this is the case. We have this feeling, we've probably had it, where you really want to know a piece of information. I've experienced it so many times myself. And sometimes you might even try to figure it out on your own before you Google it or look it up. Um, but you find yourself really wanting to know some piece of information, maybe in some cases something that you knew before, but sometimes it could be something new. And we try to fill in that gap. And then once you find that answer, we've all experienced that relief of, oh, yeah, that's what it was. Sometimes you might get a little upset that we didn't remember it or why we couldn't remember it. But overall, there is a feeling of relief when we resolve that information gap. So that's one way of talking about or trying to understand or explain curiosity. And actually, um, when I read that, it reminded me of some of the research or explanations of compassion. 
because at times we can look at compassion as this process where we feel for someone else's pain. So we see someone who is suffering, and um, because of that, we have this negative feeling within us because we can, in a way, feel their pain, quite literally. And then because of that, we try to resolve the situation by removing their suffering. So you see someone who is hungry and you feel sad and you can imagine what it's like to be hungry and you feel like it's unfair that they're hungry. So you say, I'm going to go get them some food. And then when you get them some food and they're fed, this negative feeling goes away. So in a way, this is some uh, a way of explaining or understanding compassion. We have a negative feeling that can arise from seeing someone who is suffering because of that, to take away that negative feeling, we want to solve the problem or help them with whatever they're dealing with. And then once we do, that negative feeling goes away. And this also explains why we can have something like the collapse of compassion. So if I see one person who is hungry, I think I have this bad feeling and I think, oh, let me go get them some food. Then if I find out it's 20,000 people who are hungry and there's no way for me to help them, uh, help all of them. And so in that way, if I have a bad feeling seeing them suffering, I won't be able to take away that bad feeling because I won't be able to solve that problem completely. Then we see people do a few things. One is they may try to deny the problem altogether, so they won't even look at it, or they might just feel less of a negative feeling, which they might do lots of forms of justifications for that. Sometimes we'll blame the group or the victims okay, well, if people are starving, it's because they're lazy or it's because they did something or they deserve it or even dehumanize them. They're less than human somehow. We can play some pretty incredible tricks to try to get to a place we'd like to get to mentally and emotionally. And so that way we might care less. And this is a paradox. And that's why uh, people have studied this phenomenon of the collapse of compassion why is it that one person starving might make us sad, but when we hear 10,000 people starving, we don't feel anything or we turn off? And one explanation is that it, it's too much to let ourselves feel for all those people when we don't think we can solve the problem. We don't see an easy solution. It's easier not to care at all. And of course, there's also the aspect of the personal connection we can feel when we see, for example, someone who is suffering. We are definitely social beings and we're affected by seeing people in relationships. So if I see someone actually in pain and suffering, that has a bigger impact than if I read about it or read about millions of people who are suffering. It doesn't have the same impact as seeing even just one person up close or seeing one person's story up close. So to me, I saw that connection between the uh, definition or this theory of curiosity and also how we can look at compassion. He also looks at the neuroscience of curiosity and we do see that we can see parts of the brain that get activated when we are curious. And even in the research, we find that it doesn't always look the same or that it seems that different types of curiosity might stimulate different parts of the brain. And this might explain again that we don't just have one thing that is curiosity. It could be many different things that are going on and that we might use one term of curiosity, but it isn't just one thing. And so it can look differently in the brain, but there is a lot of neuroscience uh, or neuroscientific research being done trying to understand curiosity better. He also talks about how we can cultivate curiosity 
But um, also I thought interestingly how throughout history and even to present day, we'll see people trying to stifle curiosity or uh, another way of looking at that is education or uh, the ability for people to learn. And very often this can be because the people who are in power know that that people who don't have the power would actually not be happy or might try to create some change if they were to be educated and to learn about things. And so you see a lot of negative stories and even fables like things like Hansel and Gretel or sayings like curiosity killed the cat, which make it seem like being curious and wanting to know is a bad thing uh, when in fact it's a very good thing and we, we hopefully will want to cultivate it in our kids. And so I was talking about in this bigger scale that maybe let's say a king or people in power want to hold people down and want to keep order so they don't want people to be curious or to learn. But even with parents, we see the same thing. As much as if you ask a parent, they likely will say, I want my child to be strong and independent and to think for themselves and not just to obey others. When it comes to how parents actually interact with their children, they'll get really frustrated or annoyed if their kids don't listen to them. Uh, I can't imagine the how many times I've heard in my office someone tell me, yes, and he wouldn't listen to me or she wouldn't listen to me as if kids are just supposed to obey their parents. And when they don't, they're doing something bad or that means they are bad. Even more interesting for me is that sometimes parents will be that way with their kids. They'll feel that way. But then when their kids are out with their teachers or public in general, they'll say, I don't want my child just to to do whatever people say. I want them to stand up for themselves. Why won't they stand up for themselves? And I quickly point out to them that if you are not allowing them to stand up to you, how do you expect them to think it's okay or good to stand up to others? You have to show them that it's okay for them to disobey, disagree with you, and then they will recognize that it is okay for them to think for themselves. But he had a section where he talked about how we see throughout history, even in the Bible, and so many different stories, um, messages of stifling curiosity and how it's a bad thing and how you shouldn't be curious to the point of curiosity killed the cat, that it will literally kill you. But... Um, Obviously, his message in this book is that curiosity is a wonderful thing that actually we should try to cultivate in your children. So encourage them when they are curious about something, a specific topic. He mentions how lots of time kids get interested in things like dinosaurs or outer space. Cultivate that. Help them learn more about it. See how you can stimulate them to get even more interested and involved in that topic and to further have them think about things in that way. Um, he also talks about how looking, we can look at curiosity as a personality trait, and with all personality traits, there tend to be, one, a genetic component to it, how much people can inherit this from their parents. And related to that, there seems to be different degrees or starting points people have of curiosity. Some people appear to be more naturally curious than others. Now, children in general tend to be more curious than adults, and some of that could be that we start to discourage them from being curious. But even still, we find that some people just seem to be more curious than other people. Some people like to learn about new things just to learn about new things. Some people don't find it so interesting. And even for me, always looking at different perspectives within psychology, when I'm reading the books, I thought about relationships too and how people can lose their curiosity in themselves um, or we can say just curiosity in general, but they lose that curiosity in themselves and also in their partners. And so when people talk about getting bored 
in their relationships and bored in marriages and they tell you, oh, inevitably you're going to get bored of your husband or your wife after at least, let's say, if not a few years, many years, it's inevitable. I think at times that's because we start to lose our curiosity about our partner and recognizing that actually they're multifaceted individuals that can continually amaze us and surprise us if we keep looking and try to understand them better. One, um, we never can fully know something or someone, including ourselves, but two, they're going to continue to change and evolve over time. So we would, even if we felt like we know them now, five years from now, they won't be that same person. There's more to learn about them. Uh, I've mentioned before how this is also partially due because we would rather have the safety of thinking we fully know someone and so there could be no surprises but we trade the passion that comes with still recognizing we don't fully know something so we trade passion for stability because that feels safer but then we complain about being bored not recognizing that we've helped create that scenario for ourselves but anyway coming back to this book why what makes us curious by mario livio it was definitely an interesting uh read um i had a i went on a few flights this weekend and so read it on the plane then people were intrigued by the cover and asked me about it because it is an interesting topic about curiosity and so even when we look at this book mario livio was curious about curiosity itself and he talks about how curiosity has been such a driver for so much progress and also advanced humankind in so much in so many ways and even how um there's an interesting section about the human brain and how it is so much bigger than the brains of other animals, even primates, compared to our body size. And even the number of neurons we have is much more than you would expect. And different reasons why that might have happened, one of which uh, could have been cooking. Because we were able to cook food using fire many millennia ago, it made it easier for us to get more calories from our food, also made it so that we can start eating some foods that we couldn't eat unless we cooked them. And so this allowed for the brain to potentially grow more, allowing us to be more curious, but in an interesting type of feedback loop. First, we had to be curious about fire, to even create fire, and then to try to cook the food before we ate it to then have those benefits happen. So it's interesting to see how um, evolution, or looking at an evolutionary perspective of how curiosity developed, it brings into these uh, factors things like being curious to begin with to allow our brains to grow the way that it has. So that was an interesting section as well. So that was the book, Why? What Makes Us Curious by Mario Livio. Definitely a, a interesting read that I would highly recommend. I didn't mention how he discussed Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci and also Richard Feynman and also some other scientists and individuals who displayed uh, extensive curiosity. I found those profiles interesting as well. So you can check that book out, Why What Makes Us Curious by Mario Livio. And the book of the week for this week is What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed, A Practical, Compassionate, and Helpful Guide by Mitch Golant and Susan Golant. I think I've said their last name differently every time. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So June is LGBTQ Pride Month. 
Um, I don't know if it's the whole world, actually. I know it's here in the United States for sure. And even this past weekend, I know there's lots of celebrations. Sometimes they'll just call it gay pride because I think that's how they originally talked about it. But it's LGBTQ pride month. And so thought it would be good to talk about this topic a little bit. I think it's a great thing that we have LGBTQ pride month and the weeks, weekends and all of those things. But as I've talked about when we talk about International Women's Day and other things of that sort where we celebrate some group that has somehow been oppressed or stigmatized in some way, I always hope for the day where the day or the month won't be needed anymore. So in that way, I hope there no longer will be at some point a Gay Pride Weekend or Gay Pride Week or LGBTQ month because we have we will have reached so much equality and there will be such a lack of any form of discrimination prejudice whether it's legally or what they experience out in public that there really won't be such a need for it and i hope i can imagine someone hearing me saying i don't want there to be gay pride month and thinking i'm against it but i hope that was clear that it's that i want it to not be needed anymore because we have reached some level of equality or in a level of equality where we won't have to worry about promoting the rights anymore or about reducing the stigma because people who are part of this community, basically we're talking about anyone who is not heterosexual and then also who maybe does not identify their gender with how they were born. Um, in some ways, what people might consider being different in some way, uh, they are under lots of of both legal but also um, just in society lots of pressure stress stigmatization bullying is still very common especially amongst transgender individuals and um, we see unfortunately even higher rates of suicide higher rates of homelessness and this is very likely due to at times people being disowned by their parents or kicked out of their home if they are not straight and so these things, as much as we've made a lot of progress when it comes to how we treat the LGBTQ community, we still have a long way to go. And uh, I came across, I've seen these studies before, but I saw someone post something about people who are transgender and looking at their brains. So lots of times people will say things like, "Are is bisexuality real? I've heard that mentioned before asked is it even a real thing come on people are just they just want to have everything or they're just don't want to make a choice uh, bisexuality does seem to be a very real thing actually it's much more real than we probably think even when we look at sexuality it seems that it's much more of a spectrum between heterosexuality and homosexuality than such a black and white thing of either you're gay or straight and so we might like to categorize people and categorize ourselves in these ways but it doesn't seem to match the reality of what we see when we study sexuality but nonetheless bisexuality is a very real thing and being transgender which means that you might be born male but you feel like your gender how you identify yourself is let's say female is not the same as the sex that you were born and many people think this is also oh people are just making it up or they want attention or they're confused or whatever else they might say to dismiss people who are experiencing this. But there is research and there still has to be much more research done, but looking at the brains of individuals who are transgender 
And they do tend to find that people who are transgender tend to have a, a their, there are aspects of their brain that seem to reflect their identified gender rather than the sex they were born into. Meaning that individuals who are transgender, let's say a male who feels female, who would identify as female, we look at that person's brain, we're likely to see signs of a female brain more than a male brain, showing that it's not just something they're making up or something they are um, trying to do to whether you want to say call it getting attention or whatever else. It's actually something real in their brain that is going on, which I think is interesting. And I'm glad they're doing this kind of research and I hope they continue to do it because I think it would destigmatize it hopefully further to realize this is a very real thing. It's not just something that someone is making up or even like what's even worse, calling it an illness. It's something that people are experiencing. They feel like they were born in the wrong body and it seems like they're right. Their brain is not the same as what their body is. And people are very complicated things to think of it as just everything is going to be so simple is not the case. So sometimes people are physically born a certain way, but might feel uh, that they are not that. And I think to me, we should give people that choice to be who they want to be. And um, it's a little odd for me when we get so focused on, should they be allowed to say he or she? To me, it's what difference does it make? If someone wants to change their name, for example, that's up to them. So you can't say, if someone said, oh, you know, from now on, I've changed my name from John to Tim. We're not going to say, no, I'm not going to call you Tim anymore because I knew you as John or you were born John, so I'm never going to call you Tim. That's their choice. If someone was born male, but then they recognize they feel female and they say, I'd like for you to call me she, to me, it makes total sense that we call them she or her. That's what they'd like, and it's up to them to decide how they identify, not for anyone else to do that. Another um, aspect that I think can confuse people, or at times I've heard confusion about, is that we think transgender means something about sexuality or sexual orientation when that is not the case. So you can be gay or straight, or we can say it maybe more simply, you can be attracted to men women or men and men and women and of course even that people will say you can look at that as less binary than that but let's just simplify it for this conversation for now that could be that's your sexual orientation you can be attracted sexually to certain groups uh, to certain sex of people but how you identify yourself does not have to be related to that so some people will think well if someone is transgender and if they actually go and do a sex reassignment, does that mean now they're attracted to men or now they're attracted to women? It's not going to change who you are attracted to. The gender identity is about yourself. This is how I identify. Now, whether or not they will go forward and have the sexual reassignment surgery, that's another situation. Maybe they'll still dress that way or there'll be other ways that they'll identify in that way, but that does not connect to or reflect their sexual orientation or attraction. So those are different things. They don't have to be the same thing. There can be an overlap. Someone can be transgender and also homosexual. They can be bisexual. They can be heterosexual. And even, of course, when we say heterosexual, it might need some clarifying of are we talking about their born sex or what they identify as. But nonetheless, that's why I think it could be easier to just think, is someone attracted to men, women, 
or both, rather than calling it homosexual or heterosexual, um, you can see it that way. And in most communities, we still see, as I was mentioning before, stigmatization and judgment of people who are not the traditional, what we think, which is basically heterosexual and also identifying with the sex that they were born as their gender. Um, but I'm happy that we're seeing progress towards more equality, less stigmatization, less judgment, and less prejudice. And I hope we can continue to move in that direction. And sometimes we have arguments that come up. For example, gay marriage was a big issue and still in some ways is, but um, the Supreme Court ruled out, and I forgot how many years ago now, it's been quite a while. Um, quite, well, I can say quite a while, but really several years, but quite a while uh, in, in a smaller scale. Um, but people would say, well, should they have the right to? And when I hear these conversations, should this group be allowed to X, which is something that everyone else is allowed to do, I, it kind of puzzles me that we even have the conversation. When we talk about anything to me, when we're saying, should this group be allowed? It's just, yes, there's nothing that we really have to think about when it comes to most, most of these types of situations. Should gay people be allowed to? Yes. Whatever is the end. Get married? Yes. Own property? Yes. Whatever else it is, to me, the answer is yes. Um, also, we see this with like women. And I was seeing something that was on a show last night about women and having equal rights in the United States and how it's not actually technically part of the Constitution, even though it almost became a constitutional amendment. Um, and it's this, well, should women be allowed? Yes. Just we should say yes. I'm not saying what men and women are the same or should be the same. But when we're talking about having rights, we should say if we're talking about humans and we're talking about any kind of rights, then it's their human rights that we should give it to everyone. There doesn't need to be a discussion of figuring out should women be allowed to, should gay people be allowed to, should transgender people be allowed to. We should be thinking about the equality. And if we look throughout history, people who were against the right to were almost virtually always, I just want to say it that way, I can't think of a time when they were not, but I'll say it that way just because I can't say for sure, but virtually always on the wrong side of history. Even things like in the United States uh, should, first of all, slavery itself, should that be abolished? People should they have the right to their own freedom, which is sometimes incredible to think that that was even up for discussion. Um, that was something. And then even other rights for them are things like should black and whites be allowed to marry? Is that the, do they have the right to marry each other? And that was a discussion. And of course, if you were against that, um, you're again on the wrong side of history. But it's something to keep in mind when you're thinking of keeping rights from someone. You might have a feeling about it, but really almost always it's the wrong thing to do. And the people who have taken having those rights for granted tend to be a little hesitant about giving it to others. But really you should recognize, you should be grateful that you have had that right, but not think about not giving it to others. Human rights deserve to be given to all humans. And so this month is LGBTQ uh, Pride Month. And as I mentioned, I hope for a day, probably many, many years in the future, I hope not that many, where we won't need to have a month like this because it'll be so accepted and there will be such a lack of any kind of discrimination that anyone could see that we won't need that. We might still celebrate the history of it and what has happened. That could be nice, but there won't be such a need to promote the rights because we will see equal rights. And so um, 
I hope for those who are struggling with living in a world that still does not fully accept you for being you, even for considering it different in a negative way, I hope that you can feel at least accepted first by yourself, but that the world will continue to evolve and grow and recognize that how wrong we have been to treat people poorly for being born a certain way, for being who they are. So uh, if you are still on the fence about these types of issues, I hope you'll think a little bit more and recognize that all human beings deserve rights. As we see by the research, some people are born in a way where they might be born with a certain sex as far as their body goes, but in their brain they feel and identify differently, and it's very real, and we shouldn't make them feel bad for that. We shouldn't treat them poorly for that. Unfortunately, we still do, but I'm hopeful for more progress in this regard. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment, I was talking about LGBTQ Pride Month, which it is here, uh, here in the month of June, I believe, in other countries, but definitely here in the United States. And it made me want to talk about the topic of acceptance and what that means. Sometimes we'll hear the word tolerance, and I know that can be important. Here in Los Angeles, there's the Museum of Tolerance, which is a historical museum for the Holocaust. And most kids, I remember in eighth grade, we had we went on a field trip there, and I've been there since then as well. And I think, of course, tolerance first. We need at least tolerance so we're not uh, killing each other and you know, committing genocide, absolutely. But tolerance is not enough. We shouldn't settle for tolerance. And even acceptance, in a way, is not enough. We will hopefully move towards compassion and love. But acceptance, I wasn't just thinking on a societal level. I was also thinking about it at a family level because I've seen this, and, and I'll relate it to the topic of LGBTQ pride, but in general, where we see a lack of acceptance in families, and I've seen it so often in all families, but in Iranian families, for sexual orientation, definitely, but even for things like who the child marries or even is dating, and if parents accept that or not, and how critical this feeling of acceptance is for someone to have, and how sometimes I get surprised at how parents cannot recognize the significance and the impact of not accepting their child. So to give you an example of what I at times have seen is parents will say, I love my kid, I uh, love my son, no matter what he does, he knows I love him, um, but he's gay, and so he knows that he can't bring his boyfriend to family dinners. So we love, I love him so much. I love him so much, and I want to be so close to him. Um, his other brother, who is married, can bring his wife and does bring his wife, but we don't want him to bring his boyfriend because and then they might come up with ideas or excuses in a way of, well, other people are going to, we're afraid people are going to say something to him in the family, and so we're protecting him. 
And okay, if that's the case, you can talk to him about that and make sure he's okay. He, you can let him know, you know, maybe some family members might not be okay with it. And then he can say how he feels comfortable, but don't make that decision for him. Um, or just, we don't feel good about it or whatever else it might be. And then they might feel confused as to why is my son not so close to us? Why does he not come around anymore? And we have to recognize that when you tell someone in this way, tell them by showing them that they're not accepted or that their partner is not accepted, you're telling them you're not accepted by us. Yes, you can say, I love you and I love you unconditionally. I love you no matter what, but you're saying, I love a lot of parts of you, but this part I can't even accept. I can't even look at. I don't want to even acknowledge you are in love with someone possibly, and I don't want to even know about it. I want to pretend like it's not there. So how much are you really telling them that you fully love and accept them if you are not accepting all of them? Now, you're not going to always approve even, let alone agree with decisions your kids make, not just about being gay, but even about who they date or what they decide to do in their life. And you can at times express that disapproval or disagreement with them, depending on what it is and how you express it, that can be okay. But at the end of the day, they make their decision for their lives. So when I say accept, it doesn't even mean agree or approve. Accept means that I'm accepting that that is you and that's what you've decided either, let's say who you are or you've decided to do, I can accept that. So I'm not saying go to the other extreme and pretend like you're so happy about it or you love, let's say, their partner, even if you don't, you just have to be able to accept it, that that is their decision to make, not for yours, not yours to make. So if you're someone who finds out your child is gay, for lots of parents, this is a big uh, process to go through. And there's a lot to process to begin with, depending on lots of things. But for almost anyone, it can be. But especially if you were born, in, let's say, or grew up in a traditional family. So many Iranians grew up in what we call a traditional family, and unfortunately part of the tradition included judging gays and lesbians somehow as less than or not good or immoral even or whatever else it might have been. And so you have to recognize that you have some of these associations, these biases within you. They're going to be automatic. You hear your son is gay and all those things are going to come up for you. And some of that you can't blame yourself for. It's how... Our brains work and how when things keep getting told to us and we get messages over and over again, deep in our unconscious, even we have these biases. So you might want to pretend like it's not there, but it might be there. So it's understandable it's there. But the good news is, even if they can be very deep and unconscious, they're hard to change, but it's not that they can't change. So sometimes people can be racist towards a certain group and they can have certain judgments about them and certain feelings. But if they spend time with people from that group, interact with them, build relationships, friendships, they will change that unconscious negative bias towards that group. It's not that these things are immovable and can never change. Fortunately, the human brains and humans in general were very plastic in the sense that things can change. Things aren't just fixed. So your feelings about your son being gay, for example, are not necessarily fixed or about just gay people in general. And I say feelings, especially because it is more of a feeling than some kind of truth. 
when we think of some group as less than or not good or immoral, usually or almost always really it's more about a feeling than actually any truth that's actually there. It's something we feel and those things can be changed. So you can work on that. You can start to try to understand where does it come from, your negative feeling about whatever the group is, but in this case, just taking the example further about your son being gay and what you think that means about him. What does that mean? Sometimes even people think about them. Sometimes people are afraid that people are going to find out because then they're going to think I was a bad mom or dad, or we did something that pushed him towards this. Again, that this itself is already not a bad thing, but if you think it is bad and other people do, they're going to maybe judge you as a parent. So you might have that fear. What does this mean about me as a parent that my child is not straight? Does that mean I did something bad or wrong? Which, no, you didn't, but you might have that feeling. Or what do I think that means about our future? And you might realistically have to look at things like, you know what I always imagined having my son get married and his bride and having our wedding and all of those things, and now some of those things are changing. And that can be hard too for you to, to come to terms with. And so you might have to look at that as well. And then again, the bigger picture things of like, what do I think it means for someone to be gay? Do I look at it as a choice, which research shows us it's not a choice. People are born that way. Um, or even worse, not till that long ago, even in the field of psychiatry, it was seen as a disorder or something pathological. So it's seen as a sickness or illness. And so uh, you might hold on to some of those notions. And so you see your child is ill or sick or immoral or perverse or whatever else it might be. And so you might have those things that you're holding on to as well. And you can start to look at those more closely and recognize that there isn't truth in that. It is a feeling, it is a way that you've been told certain messages that don't make sense, but they can go away. So you do have to work on yourself. And I don't want to say it's something so easy. And if you judge someone for being a certain way, you're a bad person, because I know we all hold on to judgments about different groups. But we have to do something about it. So if we choose to recognize, or if we recognize we have a prejudice, but we don't do anything about it, or we stay staunch in our belief, that's the problem. But if we recognize, you know what, I have a negative bias towards this group, let me work on that, that's wonderful. And unfortunately, sometimes it's when it comes knocking at our door, for example, you find out your son is gay, that you look at those prejudices because it's right in your face. But okay, if that's what it takes and that's what happens, now it's up to you to see what you can do with that. And I know it can be tough for you to deal with this, especially if your whole life you felt a certain way. But think about how much harder it is for your son or your daughter um, to grow up in a family where they feel like they are different in a bad way, that they're not accepted, that they're not right or okay how they are. And yes, as I mentioned in the last segment, although we've made progress, we still have a long way to go to achieve equality for the LGBTQ community, even legally, but then especially in how they're treated in society. So that can also make you sad to realize, okay, I'm sad to find out my son is gay because he might face a lot of discrimination in this world. And that makes me sad. Understandable. But if you're so worried about how they're going to be treated by the world, you don't have so much effect on that. Yes, maybe you can um, promote certain ideas and post things and be an activist, which can be great. 
but that's going to have a much smaller impact on the huge impact you can have on how your child feels in your own home and in your family, making them feel loved and accepted for who they are within your family. Yes, it's bad how people might treat them or prejudice and discrimination, bullying, whatever they might experience on the outside, but you're responsible for how they get treated inside your home and make sure you make that a loving relationship. Make sure you make them feel loved for being whoever they are, whatever it is. But in this case, we're talking about, for example, having a different sexual orientation than what we consider the norm. Make sure they don't feel bad about that with you, that you show them, I love you no matter what, that I'm here for you no matter what, and that this is who you are. And if it is who you are, I want to know more about it and love you and accept that as well, that I don't want you to feel like you have to hide that from me. And again, if you say I love him or her completely, but they have to keep their love life away from me, you're not giving them the message that I completely love and accept you. You don't have to agree or approve in the sense that you want them to do that. But when it comes to who they date in general, that's up to them. And of course, who they're attracted to in the bigger picture, that's something they feel. They're not choosing, first of all, that's an important thing to become aware of as you look into it more. They're not choosing to be certain way it's not their choice they're attracted to some people and not to others and also it doesn't make them in any way bad or something that we need to change about them oh that's another thing maybe i should mention there doesn't seem to be any support that we can change people's sexual orientation and unfortunately so many people have been subjected to horrible types of conversion therapies and different things that are horrible uh things that haven't even outlawed, thankfully, in certain states and countries. So don't try to change them. That's something I've also heard parents say. You're not supposed to change them. In general, don't change your kids. Love and accept them for who they are. But especially with this, because I've seen so many sad stories where a child comes out to their parents and can get a whole range of horrible reactions from disowned, kicked out of the family, you're not our son anymore, or our daughter anymore, all those things. But then even in the more subtle way, the family that thinks they're so accepting, but doesn't recognize that by not allowing their child to share their love life with them, their partner with them, how much that hurts them. And if you recognize that if you have two kids, one of them is heterosexual, and you completely accept for them to bring their partners, but you don't accept your gay child, recognize what message you're sending them. Your child is your child and they're being themselves and your job as a parent isn't ever to make them become something or not be something, but to love them for who they are and accept them for who they are at a deep level and make sure they feel that and they know that. And so today, because June is LGBTQ month, I wanted to talk about this topic of acceptance and to make sure we recognize the power of telling someone and also more importantly, showing them that I love and accept you as you are. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed, A Practical, Compassionate, and Helpful Guide by Mitch Gallant and Susan Gallant. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Lokwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.